0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global
1: epidemic. These are their stories.
2: Welcome back, cardio nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report Series, produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training Section, Each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the CardioNerds.
3: Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash CardioNerds. Every little bit goes a long way. Without further ado... Let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing cardionurse nurse colleagues. Today, we get the honor of being joined by cardiology fellows from the Cleveland Clinic. I'd like to welcome to the show Dr. Ben Allencherry, Dr. Erica Hutt, Dr. Zach Iljovene, and Dr. Kara Denby. Guys, so excited to have you on. Can't wait to get into the discussions today about the case and the program. Welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourselves?
4: Hi, I'm Erica Hutt. I'm one of the second-year cardiology fellows at Cleveland Clinic, one of the rising chiefs as well. My favorite outdoors activity during COVID times is to bike down the Ohio-Ear Canal towpath. It has a spectacular view. You basically bike around a forest.
1: Hi, my name is Ben Allen Cherry. I'm another one of the second-year rising chief fellows. My favorite COVID-related activity now is we've actually set up a projector in our backyard and my two-year-old son and I are avidly watching Luka Doncic and the rest of the NBA play in the uh, NBA bubble. That's awesome.
0: Hey, Cardio Nerds. This is Zach Elgiovene. I'm one of the third-year cardiology fellows. It's good to be back. I'd say probably my favorite activity during the COVID quarantine has been picking up golf for the first time. So, I'm no good at it, but there's plenty of fun courses in Cleveland to try.
3: Wait, Zach, did you go to the golf tournament?
0: I did, man. One of our first year fellows, Tiffany Dong, carried the team, and I was
3: present. Amazing. Of course, she carried the team.
0: So, every year, it's actually usually around the time of graduation just after that. So, it was delayed a little bit this year because of obviously COVID. But the fellowship gets together and hosts a golf tournament for uh, attendings and fellows to participate in. It's all skill levels. It's a lot of fun. You get paired up on a team. So even if you're not a great golfer, you might be paired with a great golfer and still do very well, which is my strategy. But we all got together. uh, There were some prizes at the end. And honestly, just a a nice way to get everybody together six feet apart, of course, but to do something outside of the hospital with the fellowship.
5: Hey, guys. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us. I'm Kara Denby. I'm one of the third year fellows at Cleveland Clinic, as well as a chief fellow. Uh, I did my residency training at Vanderbilt University. My favorite thing to do outdoors, it's tough to choose. Cleveland has a lot of wonderful options. My favorite thing to do is go down to the beach, which is just about a third of a mile from me. Uh, You can spend the day either on the beach watching the waves come in or over on the grassy area reading a book in the shade. Can't beat the Cleveland summer.
3: I, l- I love that you guys all highlighted some of the outdoor things to do in Cleveland, especially in the summer. It's a gorgeous summer and it's particularly awesome for people with kids. So it's nothing more that I enjoy on a weekend than to take my son, out, my wife, and just uh, have a nice time outside. The Cleveland Metro Parks is just such a beautiful, well-manicured, well-maintained area, which especially in the COVID era is very useful because you can still be distanced from people and enjoy. And so uh, it's called the Emerald Necklace that sort of enwraps the city from essentially lake to lake on the other side.
1: Yeah, I think the the best part about the Cleveland Metro Parks is, you know, before we had our son, my wife and I would be able to go on a little more strenuous hikes. And there's just different parks for every type of person who some people like to kind of sit by the water side, but others like to do quite physically challenging hikes. And it's just perfect. It meets everyone's desires. Wow.
2: Ben, Erica, Zach, Kara. And Ameth, I feel like family with you guys because uh, Ameth and I are like brothers and uh, being in fellowship with you guys, it's such a great family of people that support each other. I've been privy to a lot of the inter fellow room chats and banters and always hearing people coming and going. I know I, I just visualize this like computer farm where fellows are just doing amazing things and just people are walking by each other and just like chatting. And so it's a real treat for me to meet you all. We've talked about amazing Cleveland places. So as somebody who has not been to Cleveland yet, let's set the stage for a great discussion today. Take me with you guys to one of these amazing places, either outdoors or indoors or wherever you want. I'm game. Teach me Cleveland. Teach me cardiology.
5: Well, Dan, thanks for joining us. You know, I live on the west side of Cleveland and it's well known for its many different craft breweries. It's been particularly nice during the COVID times when not a lot's happening indoors we're able to enjoy a lot of outdoor patios. One of my favorites is over at Platform Brewery. Maybe we could sit together there.
1: Platform also makes Haze Jude, which is currently the best beer out in the United States.
2: Listen, guys, I was going to cut out carbs today, but I'll push it off another day. <laughs> Let's do this.
4: So I'll be presenting a case of a patient I received when I was in Day 31, which is our CICU, in one of my on-call nights as a first-year fellow. I received a transfer center call with a 27-year-old female on post-op day 3 after an emergency C-section who was found to have severe mitral regurgitation after she developed sudden onset shortness
2: of breath. Wow, Erica, that's crazy. So, do I have the straight you're getting the call about this patient as a transfer? How does that work?
4: Yes. So it's actually, I think, one of the most scary parts of our first year calls, but one of the most rewarding parts that we are basically the person and the physician doing the intake and the triaging for all outside hospital calls. We receive the call, we talk to the outside hospital provider who tells us the story about the patients, and we decide if the patient needs to come in and what level of care or what level of transfer we have to provide.
2: Wow, Erica, that's crazy, really highlights the rigor of the training program. And I know this particular rotation is pretty intense because when Amit did it last year, we basically had a plan for it by preparing all these CardioNerds episodes so that he could really focus on this very, very valuable, incredible experience as a rotation. And so I'm really, really curious to hear more about this patient. And also, what are the things that are going through your mind when you're triaging a call about severe mitral regurgitation?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. So I started asking a little bit more about the patient, so past medical history or how she got to the hospital. So I was able to find out that she presented at 39 weeks of gestation. This was her first pregnancy, uncomplicated up to now. She presented there with right upper quadrant abdominal pain and vaginal bleeding, and she was actually found to have HELP syndrome. So they admitted her for induction of delivery. HELP syndrome is characterized by hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelet count. And it usually begins during the last three months of pregnancy or shortly after delivery. One of the risk factors of this syndrome is preeclampsia or eclampsia. But this patient really didn't have any of those, so it was a little bit unexpected. She was found to have high blood pressure on that admission there, and then the rest of the testing revealed all the labs consistent with help. So this is one of the obstetrician emergencies, and so this is an indication for delivery she was induced. They elected to do vaginal delivery induction, um, but this was very quickly converted into an emergency section for fetal bradycardia. So she underwent a uh, cesarean delivery, healthy female baby, and unfortunately her surgery was complicated by placental abruption, hepatic bleeding, and she ended up requiring a wound vac, intra-abdominal bleeding, which ended up requiring repair of this hepatic laceration, she was found. So a, a very complicated post-op course. She became stable on post-op day two, and they were actually able to extubate her. And then on post-op day three, she developed very acute onset shortness of breath. With hypoxia, she de 70% on room air, and she required intubation very quickly. So then I went to what have we done for testing, right? And so I asked them about that. They had done a chest X-ray initially, which showed pulmonary edema. We didn't have the X-ray. Then they did a CTPE to rule out a PE, which I think is a very valid concern in the post-op setting. And then she underwent a TTE, or transthoracic echocardiogram, where
3: she was found to have severe MR. Wow, Erica, at this point, I wouldn't even know how you're putting this patient together because there's so much that's going on. She's got a complicated OB history and she is sort of almost immediately postpartum. And we've talked about and reflected on all the different hemodynamic effects of labor and delivery with increasing cardiac output and variable changes and preload depending on how the patient was delivered and whether or not they use epidural anesthesia as well as afterload.
5: Wow, Erica, that patient sounds really sick. It's good they did an echo to take a look at her valvular function. Severe MR is definitely in the differential of patient that decompensated this quickly. And usually you need an echo because the murmur can be absent. What else do we know about her history? Yeah, so
4: that's a great question. So she had a past medical history significant for pulmonic valve stenosis. Unclear if it was congenital, but it's presumed congenital because she had valvuloplasty at age seven. And she had a history of a heart murmur, not really specified, but on her OB prenatal visits, they mention a heart murmur that was told to her to be just a benign murmur. Other than that, really took no medications other than a prenatal multivitamin, no allergies, and she had a very significant family history of aortic dissection in a brother who died at age 15, and a spontaneous pneumothorax in a sister. So that basically made us think about maybe some underlying connective tissue disease going on. And the outside hospital was very quick in going for a TEE to just understand the mechanism of the mitral regurgitation. So she underwent a transesophageal echocardiogram that actually showed a ruptured posterior papillary muscle. So I had all of this information when I took the call. And of course, this patient was not doing very well. She was in frank cardiogenic shock, and I accepted her. So within 30 minutes, she arrived to our unit, and all of the teams involved in her care had been informed. We had cardiac surgery at bedside, and OB was also at bedside. In addition, we activated the
3: shock team, which is an emergency response team in patients with cardiogenic shock. So this is a pretty heavy conversation for the brewery, but I'm glad we're going here because it just highlights a lot of the care that we all take here in the ICU. But I just, you know, I'm just scratching my head at every juncture, right? I mean, you've got to postpartum patient who already had a complicated prepartum course with a HELP syndrome. She develops acute onset shortness of breath and deterioration, and there's a whole differential diagnosis there. And then we found that she's got severe MR. And initially, I was thinking, okay, is this patient, uh, has she always had valvular disease, micro regurgitation, and the consequences of that hemodynamically are just brought out by the confluence of changes that happen in the peripartum period? Or is this truly an acute change? It sounds like uh, at least her clinical status changed very quickly. And then we hear she's got a pap rupture and this exotic family history of multiple eric dissections, And so there's so much going on here. And so I think from the clinical reasoning perspective, we need to think about, okay, what are the ideologies? What's the sequence? What is the predispositions? But then at the same time, she is acutely deteriorating, fighting for her life. We have to keep her alive, get all hands on deck because this is otherwise a young, previously healthy patient who's got a baby to look after when we can get her out of this. So high stakes game, lots going on. We've got to keep her alive, but there's also this background of what's going on.
1: And I'll add that at our institution at the Cleveland Clinic, before I had come here from my where I did my residency at University Hospitals, Cleveland Medical Center, and even in medical school, I'd never heard of the large catchment area where we get people flown in from. And I'll just say that this kind of affects how you go about your differential diagnosis, because- As Erica's describing, we have a previously healthy, it seems, lady who has quite an acute downturn. So while Erica's going through her differential of acute MR versus acute on chronic MR, and then what the etiologies are of acute papillary muscle rupture, she has to have a clock kind of going in her head because this patient's getting flown not only for the interventions that cardiology can provide, but also for our close relationship with our cardiothoracic surgeons. So Erica, what were you thinking about when they told you that the TEE had an acute pap rupture?
4: Yeah, so my first thought is this lady needs surgery, right? We've been always taught that papillary muscle rupture is a mechanical problem, and it needs a mechanical solution, right? So it's one of those indications for emergent surgery. But obviously behind that, you also have to think, as Ahmed said, about what could be the ideology of this, and is there anything else that we should do for her before she goes to the operating
1: room? And I think that's the perfect thing because, Erica, both me and you just finished our first year where we took a bunch of these calls. And I think there's certain decisions that have to be made on a rather expedient basis. And one of those is how quickly do I get the interventional cardiologist or the cardiothoracic surgeons on board? And I think it's great that you're thinking the moment you're on the phone to loop the cardiothoracic surgery team in right away. Wow,
2: guys, this is an incredible case. And also to see the machinery That you have to provide the care that you need to for this patient is just absolutely impressive. You have the shock team that's basically standing by and you have the OB team standing by. You knew that this patient needed a lot of help and you made sure to get all of that help there even before she came. Almost like it reminds me of like when I did medical school and did shock trauma. We knew that this patient was coming in with a multi-shot thing and you just have everybody waiting there to do the primary and secondary survey. It reminds me of that. And just to reflect on what we said, that a severe acute mitral regurgitation is a surgical problem. It really needs a surgical fix just to dwell on that for a hot second. And that's because you have this big mitral orifice that is now open to flow. And so when that left ventricle squeezes, that flow is going to say, okay, well, I'm blood, I'm in the left ventricle. I have the option of going through an aortic valve which has a smaller diameter, or I could just go out that mitral valve. And so all of that blood gets ejected at the mitral valve. And when we're talking about wedge pressures and pressures in the lungs, we're used to talking about, okay, 12 is elevated, 25 is very elevated, 35 is super elevated. But now we're dealing with the onslaught of pure left ventricular squeeze, just shoving that blood back into the lungs. It's very profound. You know, acute mitral regurgitation from pap rupture, um, is not the most common thing we see these days, especially after a lot of interventions that have been developed to treat STEMI and acute MI. But when you see it, you see it. I mean, it's, I'm not sure if we want to keep this, but it, it's kind of like pornography. You know it when you see it. Acute pap <laughs> rupture. acute pap rupture is legitimate concern. And there's nothing subtle about it. We've said it on other episodes where patients presented with chest pain and had a profound murmur. And it was thought maybe this is pap rupture, but the patient's like hemodynamically stable. That's not really what usually occurs. It's usually a presentation like this. So wow. Again, just very impressed at the mobilization and that your response and just so you're ready to pronounce.
1: Dan, the onslaught of the LV sounds like a horror story. Indeed, it is. Indeed, it is. But this really leads into what your approaches are for
2: initial stabilization of a patient like this. And maybe you guys could talk a little bit about what was going through your mind as you mobilize this team. And what could we do to get her to surgery? Like, what are things that we can do to potentially help out?
4: Yes, that's a great question. And actually, when they called me, they were all in the catheterization lab, given that they were doing this transesophageal echocardiogram, they were doing it in, in their cath lab. And so they gave me her vital signs. Her blood pressure was actually quite low. This thought was in the 90s, um, and she was not really ventilating appropriately. So the next step, which I agreed with in discussion with the cardiologist there, was to escalate care to mechanical support. And in her case, they decided for an intra balloon pump, which was what they were able to do. And so she had an intra balloon pump placed, and then she was transferred to us. So on arrival to our unit, her blood pressure was... 100 over 48. Her heart rate was 120. She was barely satting 90% on 100% FiO2, and she was intubated and sedated. She had the anterior balloon pump in femoral position, a Swan that was actually showing also very elevated pressures. Obviously, we had the surgeons there, but the first thing that we were able to do with the help of the PTCA fellow was to focus quickly on lowering her blood pressure to decrease her afterload we started nitroprusside infusion, and then we gave her some IV furosemide to help with her oxygenation.
5: Yeah, Erica, what's happening so far is pretty incredible. One of the things that's kind of unique about how we do things in our cardiac ICU at Cleveland Clinic is the first year is the primary and takes ownership of the unit overnight. But every night we have a senior fellow as well, which we affectionately recall to as the PTCA or pizza fellow, um, which I think Zach is that role today. So he can talk to you about how that's going. One of the nice things about having senior fellows on 24-7 is that if this patient was at a center that didn't have capabilities of putting in an intra-aortic balloon pump, this is something we actually do regularly. Having these capabilities overnight, it's not only great experience for us being able to put in balloon pumps, do swans. It's also great to be able to provide really timely care to patients. As soon as they roll in, we can take them immediately to our fluoroscopy suite in our unit and put a balloon pump in, put a swan in, and get started on care that will hopefully turn them around very quickly.
0: Yeah. So as Kara mentioned, I'm actually the pizza fellow right now providing special deliveries for the first year fellow as needed, though not as exciting as pizza. Womp womp. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> 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 Damn. I love that.
3: I I did think, I was like, what is this pizza fellow? Do they just like bring food to the first year fellow? That's awesome. Right. That actually would have been a really good responsibility.
0: Well, I I think as a pizza fellow, one of your foremost responsibilities is making sure the first year fellow is caffeinated and, and fed when needed. So happy to help with that. But it really is a pretty incredible position because it's putting all of your training thus far together and getting to mentor a first year fellow really be pretty much the most senior cardiology person in the hospital at any given time overnight. So you're making a lot of management decisions. Certainly you have the back of of the attending or uh, some of these other services when you need, but it is an opportunity for you to do some one-on-one teaching. And I think one of the great things about our fellowship is a lot of our learning is fellows, teaching fellows. And so I can remember vividly as a first year, some of my calls overnight and having the pizza fellow to rely on. And now just a a few years later, being that pizza fellow and remembering not just some of the acute academic lessons, but emotionally what that means to have that kind of support, I think is just not something that's very common. And so that coupled with the ability that we have overnight to do some pretty incredible management and do a lot of procedures and help the first year become very comfortable with procedures, I think is some of the best parts of the job.
3: I couldn't agree more. And I've got to give a shout out to Kevin Trulock, who was my first pizza fellow. As a first year fellow, you never forget. You never forget your first pizza fellow because you walk into that unit. I actually remember I took a video of me walking up to the unit because I was just so, I was, I was, just, I was nervous, frightened really. And I was just so thankful that Kevin was my pizza fellow. He rounded me throughout the unit. He showed me how to evaluate swan numbers. He showed me how to do bedside echocardiograms and upload them on the server interrogate them to figure out what's going on with the patients that come in. He showed me how to put in a swan, temporary and wires and a balloon pump. That first night, it really set the tone of my relationship with the unit for the rest of my fellowship. And I always think to Kevin when I walk into that place.
1: That's an awesome story. I always remember my first pizza fellow, Jonathan Hansen, So shout out. Second thing, Zach, you brought up fellows teaching fellows. And I think in our program, that stretches also as a still undecided general cardiology fellow. Last year, uh, you bought me coffee and we talked about your specific career path, which I think is a little unique. And I just ask you to kind of come back to the case with your specific career in mind of being heart failure and critical care specialized. And what do you think about this case in terms of what you would see on the pulmonary artery catheter, as well as maybe give a little critique and explanation of why they chose a balloon pump for their initial mechanical support?
0: Yeah, sure, Ben. I, and I uh, I remember our, our cup of coffee quite well, and I'm still confident you're going to make the right decision uh, in life. But for this case, I think the management thus far has been really good. And Erica is absolutely hitting the nail on the head when she says this is surgical disease and and getting right up there as far as like a surgical emergency. Unlike chronic mitral regurgitation, acute severe MR is problematic for a few reasons. Probably mostly driven by the fact that the left ventricle and the left atrium have not had time to compensate. And so they're really not compliant chambers. Because of that, you can get low cardiac output, you can have poor forward flow, you're going to have a potentially a severely elevated LV LVN diastolic pressure because of the okay. resulting increase in preload. If you were to put a swan in, as you said, you would see this elevated LVEDP, you would see these large V waves. And so I think the name of the game, as you're trying to temporize this patient to get them to surgery or get them to a facility where they can undergo surgery, the name of the game is trying to unload the LV and protect that.
1: Awesome. Thanks. And if you remember correctly during our coffee conversation, I think you referred to heart failure as heart success. So maybe I'll
0: apply for that. Who
3: knows? (laughs) hard success. I love it.
0: So when you think about unloading the LV, I think a few concepts to touch on are that you really want to reduce afterload. And so thinking about what those options might be, one of the most readily available at many places is something like a balloon pump. A balloon pump is going to give you some afterload reduction. It's going to help with some cardiac output. It's not going to be very much cardiac output compared to some of our other percutaneous mechanical devices that are available. But in things like acute pap rupture and things like VSR, where you want to get blood flowing the right direction again, and you need to do it quickly, I think something like a balloon pump can be very helpful as far as temporizing and also have options readily available if that's not going to be enough support. So things like Impella or some of these percutaneous pumps. And we of course have things like ECMO available if we need, and the shock team can be convened and some of these decisions can be made quickly if needed.
2: That's a really awesome point, Zach. There's a reason why mechanical circulatory support is something that we're thinking about right away with these patients, because this is one of those situations where you're darned if you do and darned if you don't. Think about what happens. You have this acute mitral regurgitation. You have this left atrium and left ventricle, as you talked about, who have not yet become accustomed to these large influx of flow of blood. And you have immediate pulmonary edema because of that. But not only do you have the immediate pulmonary edema, you also have the hemodynamic compromise with hypotension. So the body's response is to say, oh, I'm hypotensive, so I need to increase my systemic vascular resistance. So the SVR goes up, and that makes that aortic valve and LVOT even less exciting to go out if you're a blood and you want the path of least resistance. So this basically shoves more blood backwards. Well, if you think about all the medications that we have in our toolkit, we got our inotropes, which basically will increase contractility of the left ventricle. But that's not really needed because the left ventricle is contracting fine. It's just that the blood is going backwards. And then we have our medications that basically improve the blood pressure, which will basically increase that systemic vascular resistance because the patient is hypotensive. But by doing that, obviously, we make the backflow worse as well by increasing the SVR. So we want to like basically reduce the FSVR, but we don't have a medicine that can do that and yet increase forward flow because the patient's hypotensive already. So we really are looking for a mechanical circulatory support device that will A, lower the systemic vascular resistance, but at the same time, increase forward flow to make up for that drop in what would be the blood pressure. So again, as you said, Basically, we want to encourage forward flow out the LV and by lowering the SVR, but not at the expense of hyper like the initial insult of the acute mitral regurgitation has already been doing.
4: Exactly, Dan. And this patient actually had an increase in her systolic blood pressure after the intra balloon pump was placed. So her systolic on admission was 100, but her systolic blood pressure when they called was in the 90s.
1: Erica, I can't help but think how unique this case is. I've actually never seen a papillary muscle rupture. And I know it's associated with some ischemic changes sometimes, but this case seems very, very unique. What were you thinking when you took the call and what were the next steps in the case?
4: Yes, Ben, I agree. Very interesting and very unfortunate at the same time. So the first thing I thought is could this patient have had some ischemic event, right? Because we're taught that the majority of papillary muscle ruptures are secondary to ischemia. So In a young patient with no coronary artery disease, my first thought was because she had SCAD and dissected one of her coronary arteries and ended up with a ruptured papillary muscle. We obviously didn't have a catheterization to prove that, but that was one of my first thoughts. However, when I heard the story from her family about undiagnosed connective tissue disease, I thought maybe she actually had mitral valve prolapse and just physiologic changes of pregnancy led to her valve to rupture. So those were the things going in, in my mind. We started with an EKG, of course, and then we went for a chest x-ray. Her EKG showed that she had sinus tachycardia, and she did have anterior ST segment depression, which was consistent with a posterior myocardial current of injury. Her cardiac enzymes were also elevated, and her chest x-ray was very significant for pulmonary edema, which, if you see, has right lower lobe predominance.
1: This is a unique finding. I see... And it's kind of me looking in retrospect, because I don't think I would have picked this up as you went on and if I was in your shoes. But I think in the classic textbook, if you have this acute pap muscle rupture, it can kind of selectively choose the pulmonary vein at which the jet is directed. And if you look at the chest x-ray, it almost looks kind of like a right middle lobe pneumonia, but it it may still fit our picture overall of cardiogenic shock due to a pap muscle rupture. So it's a really unique chest x-ray here.
4: Yes, exactly. And interestingly, I then went back and looked at her TEE and actually they interrogated her pulmonary veins and you could see higher velocities for systolic flow reversal in the right-sided pulmonary vein versus the left-sided pulmonary vein, which would give you the explanation of why she had more right lower lobe predominance of pulmonary edema.
1: Wow. So everything kind of makes sense still and is fitting together with the one diagnosis. Exactly. Exactly.
5: Erica, I think it was really good that you're thinking about kind of atypical sources of ischemia in such a young patient. This isn't someone we would think about traditional coronary artery disease causing ischemia if this were to be ischemic. I think SCAD is a very good thing to have in your differential. And also thinking about embolic diseases, um, whether it be vegetative material during endocarditis or some thrombus that develops and either directly embolizes or paradoxically embolizes through a patent PFO. I think this is a really interesting discussion in such a young patient. doesn't seem like our patient had ischemia, given her clinical picture, but always good to think about when you're talking about acute pap rupture.
3: Kara, that was such a great differential diagnosis. Across the series, we've definitely seen a paradoxical coronary embolus from a patent PFO. And in a similar context, postpartum, it was a handful of weeks postpartum, we had a patient who essentially had come in, with evidence of ischemia and angina, and a coronary angiography found coronary ostial stenosis of the left main and the RCA, and the eventual ideology was P. anca associated coronary vasculitis. So it just goes to show you that young people can get coronary disease too, and it may be atherosclerosis from undefined risk factors like elevated LP little A or uh, hypercoagulability. But there's certainly a long list of rich differential diagnosis to consider for ischemia infarction that ended up leading possibly to pap rupture.
5: And Ahmed, I think that points to the fact of uh, why we're all cardio nerds. Medicine will keep surprising us.
3: 100%. I couldn't agree with you more.
4: All right. So let's get back to the case. As I said, cardiac surgery was at bedside and the shock team was activated. She was stable enough to go to the operating room. And so within 60 minutes, she was actually able to make it to the operating room with one of her mitral valve experts. And she underwent mitral valve replacement. However, her course was actually pretty complicated in the operating room. and. Soon after they finished the mitral valve replacement and while they were coming off pump, she started developing very brisk bleeding from her chest. And they had to put her back on pump, open her up again, and they saw that her myocardium had actually dehissed. So the entire left atrium was dehissed and even a part of the left ventricle. So our surgeon had to start all over again, take out the prosthesis, and then put up a new prosthesis, put in pericardial patch, and sew all the myocardium that had to his. You know, and I just want
3: to highlight that there is a recurrent theme here. Erica, as you so astutely noted, there's a family history that raised awareness or concern for underlying connective tissue disease. And here, just in a span of a few days, we've got a patient who's developed a liver laceration spontaneously, a papillary muscle. A rupture spontaneously and post surgical dehiscence of myocardial tissue. In this context of being postpartum peripartum and having probably some underlying predisposition, the tissue clearly doesn't have structural integrity. And we think about the peripartum changes in tissue characteristics, but the hormonal changes do change the tissue elasticity and integrity in pregnancy. But it's just that most patients don't have a vulnerability to actually having a manifest rupture or laceration in this way.
5: Yeah, Ahmed, I think that points to the importance of not anchoring on diagnoses, but keep circling back as more information comes up. I think the finding of the tissue fragility or how easily it dehissed intraoperatively really makes us think again about what's the ideology in this patient. I think whenever you're seeing a patient in clinic and they mention that their brother passed away from an aortic dissection in their teens, that should really make you think that's not a normal thing to happen. You really need to go searching for what could be running in this family. Yes. And actually, the surgeon did report
4: that her tissues were extremely friable and reminded him of vascular Ehlers-Danlos because it's
3: one of the reasons why the tissue can be very, very
4: friable in the operating
3: room. Yeah, that's so interesting. And going back to what Kara said, obtaining family history itself is such an art. Um, you know, I'll ask patients all the time, hey, do you have like heart history? And people were like, oh, yeah, my grandfather will had a massive heart attack. And then you like delve into it deeper and you realize it actually wasn't necessarily a heart attack. You know, the grandfather was fine until he wasn't. And by all means and definition, it was a sudden death event or, oh, yes, they didn't have a heart problem. They died in a car accident. And you ask, was there a passenger? Actually, he was driving and then all of a sudden just slumped over and that's what preceded the car accident. And so, you know, I think the, the obtaining of the family history is so important, but I'm curious, how did you guys put this together in terms of the tissue being so friable from the surgeon's perspective? having multiple episodes of tissue rupturing or lacerating and with his family history?
4: Yeah, so retrospectively, we went back to look at the literature and there's only actually five cases reported of postpartum papillary muscle rupture and etiologies were really limited to postpartum MI, secondary to underlying CD in older patients, infective endocarditis, and then connective tissue disorders. And in this group, vascular elus downloads was highlighted. So with the description of the surgeon about the friable tissue and how it basically looks like butter and feels like butter when they're in the operating room, fast in downloads became very high in the differential. So as soon as she arrived to the surgical ICU, genetics was consulted.
1: And I think another point here, Erica, is one that we may take for granted here at our institution is that the head attending surgeon giving the first-year cardiology fellow an update on the surgical case And this is not really the rarity. We have the luxury of having some of the best, most specialized cardiothoracic surgeons. And it's a very clear line of communication between us oftentimes as the first year fellows and the cardiothoracic surgery team. So this was great that you had the immediate feedback because you knew the case best pre-op and the surgeon was able to fill you in on what he found and that ultimately helped progress the case.
4: Yes, I did receive immediate feedback and this patient actually got to the operating room at two AM in the morning and the surgery took about twelve hours, so she was out of the operating room the, the following day at two PM. She unfortunately made it out of the OR on ECMO with anterior balloon pump given diffuse bleeding after the second
2: MVR was placed. Wow, this is an incredible case. And the collaboration that you're describing between yourselves and surgery is just so critical to figure out exactly what's going on. It's something that we don't appreciate as much as medical cardiologists is what's going on in the operating room. Sometimes it's like a black box. And to have that kind of communication between you and the surgeon that's working on the same patient is just so helpful, especially since you have been thinking about a lot of these underlying etiologies for this patient's clinical course. And two heads are greater than one, especially when you can get that perspective of what the tissue actually felt like. So that brings in the next step, which is obviously when you have the opportunity to do surgery, you also have the opportunity to involve a new set of colleagues, namely our pathologists. So I'd be really, really, really curious to hear about what the pathologist found and if that potentially can shine a light on this case.
4: Yes, then. I was also curious about that. I actually checked the chart every single day waiting for that pathology to result because I was expecting to see some sort of infiltration in the mitral valve or degenerative changes there to point towards what my suspicion was initially about her having mitral valve prolapse even before going into pregnancy. But actually, the pathology showed uh, the rupture posterior medial papillary muscle consistent with an approximately 72-hour infarct. So there was evidence of infarct. her mitral valve leaf, it was normal. Didn't show any kind of myocarditis evidence, no infiltrative disease and no infection.
2: I was not expecting that at all, especially since we're talking about connective tissue diseases and everything we've talked about in the discussion. Wow, this is a game changer for this particular patient.
4: Yes, and... The other thing to consider is that even though there was infarct, that doesn't necessarily mean there is atherosclerosis, right? So we have to think about what Kara said earlier. Was it an embolic event? Was it maybe SCAD? Is there something else that would cause this ischemia? It doesn't necessarily mean coronary artery disease. She was young.
1: Right. So I see you're kind of at a crossroads here and trying to figure out the etiology. What did you guys do next?
4: So next, we focus mainly on her hemodynamics, She was still on ECMO, requiring three liters a minute of flow and enterotic balloon pump one-to-one, not doing very well in terms of perfusion. So she was actually listed for a heart transplant, and very quickly she was status one for ongoing VA ECMO need. Um, Unfortunately, then she developed massive hemorrhage, both in GI and pulmonary, so she was taken off the list at day 11 and passed away, unfortunately.
1: Wow, that's a really unfortunate result. You know, we've seen a lot of people on ECMO, as well as uh, with an intraortic balloon pump, and bleeding is obviously a complication. We worry about that in people who are older, maybe who have other sort of bleeding risks. In her case, do you think this ties in with the whole underlying possible connective tissue disease as to why an otherwise young person had such bad bleeding profile?
4: Yes, definitely. I think that took a big role in her case. So in the background, genetic testing was obtained. And then after she expired, the family wished to pursue with an autopsy. So we did pursue autopsy and we will have the pictures available for anyone who wants to look at them. And her postmortem examination revealed that she had an acute and almost circumferential transverse aortic rupture in the suprarenal abdominal aorta. She also had a 2.5 centimeter aneurysm in the infrarenal aorta, and there really wasn't any evidence of medial degeneration to point towards Marfan syndrome, no accumulation of mucopolysaccharides. Her elastic lamella was actually intact. One thing I was actually also waiting for to see was her coronary arteries, and they were all normal. There was no sign of atherosclerosis, no dissection, no heel dissection either. She had extensive hemorrhage as well in her myocardium, lung, and gastrointestinal tract. Other than that, the rest of her organs were normal. No hollow organ rupture was evident.
2: So was the papillary ischemia attributed to global ischemia instead of focal coronary ischemia?
4: I think it was attributed to focal ischemia, but most likely from an embolic
3: clot. I think, you know, we also think about what is the manifestation and who is our host, you know, and sure we think about it in infectious disease, but it's also relevant here. The host that we're taking care of here, this patient, this person, this mother, she is in a state that is hypercoagulable, you know, so you can imagine an embolic clot. And then she's also in a state where uh, her tissue is going to be more friable than her baseline, which is also very relevant to all of this manifestations of underlying connective tissue disease. And so it's hard to know definitively at this point, but clearly she took an ischemic hit and there's a transmural infarct and pap rupture from that. And she probably didn't require too much of an ischemic injury because she also has friable tissue to begin with, both with her pregnancy-related hormonal changes and uh, underlying connective tissue disorders. It's a confluence of multiple hits. And I just have to take a moment to say that this is just absolutely devastating. You know, this young, otherwise healthy or seemingly healthy woman who's now a mother is leaving behind an infant, the multidisciplinary team really rallied around her, gave her every chance possible. From the very first call, Erica, that you took to the auto launch, to the surgery, the balloon pump, the listing that status one on heart transplant. I mean, there's nothing more you can do, but you hear about the sequence of adverse events. This young woman never stood a chance. And so I just want to thank her and her family for the privilege that it is to learn from her story and looking forward to seeing what we learn was her underlying predisposition and how can we apply it to the future and the way we manage our patients?
4: Yes, that is absolutely right. And it was very devastating for all of us. I could not stop thinking about her baby. Going back to Dan's point about the ischemic event, I think it's actually one of the teaching points here is that papillary muscle rupture can happen without any coronary artery disease. And as you know, the posterior medial papillary muscle has single blood flow from the PDA, whereas the anterolateral has dual supply. And the majority of cases actually happen in patients with a very, very small territory that infarcted. So it's really just that tiny little vessel that gets to that papillary muscle that can result in a rupture. So, going forward, a few days after her autopsy, we actually obtained her genetic testing result, and it showed that she had a pathogenic variant in her gene call 3A1, which is consistent with vascular Edler's downloads.
3: Yeah, that really puts everything together um, just from the clinical reasoning standpoint. The takeaways that I remember are it's really that tissue friability that you pointed out. And these patients are at risk of tears in the walls and ruptures of hollow, viscous organs. The patients rarely make it beyond the 20s without some sort of event, either a surgery or some sort of rupture. They can have like a colon rupture. In pregnancy, you can have a uterine rupture. And they tend to have dissections of major vessels without too much of a predisposing aneurysm. And the threshold for taking them to surgery is higher just because the tissue friability and the healing end up becoming issues in terms of suturing and getting wound apposition. But what do we do now at this point, now that we've got this underlying diagnosis? How does this impact our care moving forward?
5: This is obviously a heartbreaking case for the family and for everyone involved in the care. You know, we see cases like this a lot. Sometimes there's patients that despite rallying the troops and giving every best effort we have, there's no way to save the patient. I think the best thing we can do is think about what we can learn from here and how we can affect the future generations to hopefully save the next generation from this similar outcome. Looking back at her history, her brother passed away from aortic dissection or rupture at age 15. At that time, the family did have an evaluation for Marfan syndrome, but we're told that they were negative and nothing else came of it. So I think referring people to aortic centers of excellence is important in these kinds of conditions. Here at the Cleveland Clinic, we have an aortic panel that has 37 different gene variants that it tests for. So while they may have been negative for Marfans, potentially someone could have picked up that she was positive for this vascular ehlers low mutation. I think what else is interesting in her case, she just had a daughter, actually. Um, and thinking about the implications for her, this is an autosomally dominant disorder. And so her daughter has a 50% chance of having the same mutation. So obviously, genetic counseling for the family is essential. A lot of the recommendations from the different ACC, AHA, Academy of Thoracic Surgery, they all recommend counseling even as early as adolescence and prescribing contraception for this particular disorder. I noticed she also had four sisters and three brothers. And so thinking about people immediately affected, those siblings all have the same chance, presuming this wasn't a de novo mutation, which is unlikely because the sister was probably also um, affected. And so I think the implications that we can come with this is genetic testing in these patients is essential, as well as thinking about preconceptive counseling for these patients. We deal with actually a lot of aortic pathology here at Cleveland Clinic. We have a really large center seat, numerous dissections and genetic syndromes like Marfan's, Louis Dietz, eller etc. et cetera. The importance of preconceptive counseling, in general, the guidelines recommend avoiding pregnancy if the maternal risk of death is greater than 10%. So that includes all cases of vascular ill or down low, where the mortality is about 20% for each pregnancy. And so had this woman been diagnosed sooner, perhaps her family planning would have been different and her life could have been spared. Looking at other conditions, Marfan, we see tons of cases. I actually looked up the guidelines recently and learned that you actually would do surgery prior to going through delivery if the aortic root was greater than four centimeters, which is just barely above normal. Um, And that pregnancy is contraindicated if they're greater than 4.5. Similarly, other connective tissue disorders like Lewis Dietz, some of the familial aortic dissection syndromes, they would actually recommend doing surgery somewhere between 4 and 4.5 centimeters, which is really, really early. So I think, you know, just being aware of these people, if you don't have familiarity with these conditions, referring to a center that sees this can help hopefully prevent these sorts of outcomes.
1: Kara, that was very well said. And Amit, I want to echo what you said. I think most of the CardioNerds case reports I've heard in the past have been triumphs, so to speak. But I think every patient can teach us something. And I'm remembering a vascular ehlers case I had in residency, which taught me similarly to what we just said, that in almost every sort of situation, whether it's renal artery dissection or carotid dissection, the management is always that we want to avoid instrumentation And I think this patient kind of just shows you that on the autopsy, she had multiple dissections in different arterial beds, as well as the recent history of hepatic lacerations. That, Erica, I just want to say hats off to you because the whole team did everything they could, but the predisposition was just so severe. So hats off to the team. But the learning point here is that moving forward, this patient's case has taught a whole lot of people who are soon to be cardiologists about this relatively rare disease.
3: Ben, thank you for bringing up that point. This case highlights so many of the things that make cardiology so special. You get to take care of patients in every domain. You're at the cutting edge of technology. You're one of many, a part of an important team uh, that has to work together. And there's so much you can offer to our patients, whether it be from genetics counseling to advanced mechanical circulatory support and high-stakes surgeries. But despite everything we can do and do do, Sometimes it's not enough. And recognizing that is important because cardiology, we deal with the sickest of the sick and we will lose patients as we lost a person here. And it's on us to, one, not only honor them by learning from them, it's also a privilege to be able to be stewards of this grieving process for others on the team, because I'm sure this is very tragic and difficult for everyone, but also for the family. And in this very special situation, you also have the ability to take what we learned from her and use it to better the life of her daughter in terms of family screening, cascade screening and appropriate counseling moving forward. Uh, I think the learning point for me to take away from this is to really respect the importance of family history, genetics counseling, cascade screening and counseling at every juncture, but especially preconception counseling for these patients and for everybody. So I'm so thankful and grateful for the honor of learning from her story, and thanks for bringing it to light for us. Thousands of people are going to learn from this. And I'd like to use this time to ask uh, each of you, what made you choose cardiology and what makes your hearts flutter about training at the Cleveland Clinic?
1: Why I chose cardiology, I really enjoyed internal medicine, but I thought cardiology offered just extended arms of diagnosis, echocardiography, if we went the interventional route, catheterization, and you can go on and on. And I thought that was an awesome sort of setup to treat patients. What's specifically about Cleveland Clinic that made me attracted to the program? Now, I think we have all these focuses of excellence down to specific niche diseases, such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, pericardial diseases. But really, when you go, and unfortunately this year, there's not going to be an in-person tour, but we've tried, especially as three of us are the chiefs on, we've tried to replicate it with video. But what really attracted me was the fellows' office. So, this case kind of shows we learned something so specific about a rare disease. But in our fellow's office, we have all of us sitting there sharing the unique things we see on a day to day basis. And you really learn through these brilliant colleagues of mine how much and how different patients present and what there is to learn. And I was really attracted to that. My brother in law was a previous fellow at Cleveland Clinic. Shout out Matthew Gonzalez. And he raved about this, just the ability to talk over cases in this collegial environment. And it's definitely true. And I've really enjoyed it.
5: You know, for me, I was attracted to cardiology, I think in some similar ways as Ben. I never thought I would be a specialist. I liked everything. I did MedPed's training, the classic can't decide what I want to do, but I really am interested in everything. I didn't want to give up anything, but ultimately decided that in cardiology, you are a generalist with obviously a some specialty bent. You get to do ICU, you get to do procedures, you get to carry or follow patients over the span of their life and treat really every age group. And so for me, that was the perfect fit. What really drew me to Cleveland Clinic, the pathology here is just so much of it, every single type of every disease. I think when I was looking, I wanted to go somewhere where I would see everything. I wanted to be exposed to every disease and all the different presentations of those diseases. Because when I go out and practice, I want to have already seen this and things look familiar. And I wanted to do that in a setting where I was supported, that I had autonomy, but I also had layers of people there who I could fall back on. I think we all feel very fondly about our coronary ICU J31. It's really the pinnacle of what it is to be a Cleveland Clinic fellow. You have an incredible amount of autonomy in treating these very sick patients, but you're there always with a senior fellow and with you're attending, and with the support of the surgical subspecialties and the imaging subspecialties and everything else. And it's just this really well oiled machine that you can learn and be pushed, but in this really safe environment. And you get to be part of, really, in, in a sense, that J31 is a machine that provides care for patients. And that's kind of what drew me and, and what keeps me excited about being a fellow at the clinic. For me, cardiac pathophysiology
4: was what drew me to cardiology. I actually decided it in third-year medical school when I learned about valvular disease and cases like this one, for example, where we could see that this patient had pulmonary edema, which was right-sided, secondary to just eccentric jet that goes preferentially to the right-sided pulmonary veins. To me, that just made sense and everything made sense in cardiology. So that's what drew me. In terms of what brought me to Cleveland Clinic, actually my brother, he worked here in Cleveland and that's how I learned about the Cleveland Clinic. I came to residency here. I love the institution because of the diversity that it has in terms of physicians and everyone around us. I actually made very good friends from all over the world and I wanted to stay in this institution. And I would echo what Kara just said. I think that RCICU or cardiac ICUs is really what makes this program special. Not only the autonomy and all the procedures that we do, but also the pathology that we're exposed to. This patient was actually my second papillary muscle rupture in one year. And other than that, I've seen a lot of other mechanical complications of MIs and the pathophysiology that's associated to that is very interesting to me. And the way we manage it with mechanical support makes it even
3: more exciting. You guys, I couldn't agree more with everything you said. And honestly, one of the things that I really feel grateful for about being a clinical Clinic fellow myself is just so well exemplified by this very discussion. It's the fellows teaching fellows, the fellows at the Fulcrum, the clinical volume of cases coming in from all over the place. The faculty that we get to learn from, like Dr. KalaHasti and Dr. Menon, who the audience will be able to listen to shortly, but so many others that have been featured on the show in the past. And so the clinical training without reserve is phenomenal, but also... I think there are other facets that are worth highlighting. One is the flexibility and bandwidth to enjoy other academic pursuits, whether it's starting up a RCT or a meaningful registry, like some people have done, or starting up a medical education podcast like the Cardio Nurse. And then I think something that's really very close to my heart is the bandwidth and support to really have life outside of the hospital. You know, you counterbalance the clinical rigor and training with a meaningful life outside the hospital The ability to raise children in a beautiful city and flexibility in terms of fellows helping you out so you can be there for your family. I think this single calendar year, our fellowship with superfellows combined has given birth to between 10 and 15 babies. And, you know, they're all a part of our Cleveland Clinic family and and we're there for each other for that. So that's just been such an important part of my fellow experience. And uh, I'm grateful that we have the ability to be there for our families.
1: Extremely fertile fellowship. Very productive.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Makes me nervous to drink the water.
6: <laughs>
3: In true Cleveland Clinic fellow spirit, Zach had to peel away to scrub into a procedure and to help out the first year fellow. So he's not able to tell us all the reasons he enjoys cardiology and training at the Cleveland Clinic, but he's living it right now.
2: Yeah, Erica, Kara. And Zach, when you hear this, Ben and Amit, hearing this case really was so valuable. I'll speak on behalf of the listeners, to our listeners, to myself, you know, really highlighted so many aspects of cardiology as well as cardiology at the Cleveland Clinic. I feel so invited into your world. And it was just a pleasure to really see how such great care could be delivered to patients in their most needing times. I will take this remaining part of the beer and raise a toast to cardiologists everywhere, incoming applicants, particularly applicants to the Cleveland Clinic. Cheers. And thanks again for taking the leap with us on the Cardio Nerd Show. Cheers.
7: Cheers.
6: Cheers.
5: Cheers. Cheers. And now I'd like to introduce our ECPR specialist, Dr. Cal Hasty from Cleveland Clinic. He is our local aortic specialist and expert faculty teacher.
6: This is Dr. Kalahasti. I'm one of the non-invasive cardiologists at the Cleveland Clinic, and I am the director of the Marfan and Other Vascular connective Tissue Disorders Clinic under the umbrella of the Aortic Center. Uh, we have multiple centers of excellence at the Cleveland Clinic, and the Aortic Center is one of those centers which especially deals with patients who have got aortic disease and uh, genetically mediated vascular connective tissue diseases. This is a great opportunity for me to talk to you cardio nerds, going mean, I have to shout out to Amit and all the other hosts for this podcast. Because I think it's a wonderful platform for very easy learning and also get highlighted about some of these unique cases that are presented in this format. So this is a very unique case that Erica had presented. And unfortunately, the patient did not survive despite the heroic efforts at the Cleveland Clinic. This patient probably could have been diagnosed with this condition earlier if there was adequate screening of the family members after her brother had died of aortic dissection and her sister had pneumothorax. You know, unfortunately, the patient suffered the consequences of an undiagnosed, what ended up being a lethal condition in her case. A couple of points to think about in this case are that mitral valve prolapse, even though it's not the most common manifestation, but it's been very well described in patients with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. There was an elegant study published in Circulation back in 1981, where they looked at patients with and without tissue analysis and then detected Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and majority of the patients did have mitral valve prolapse. But the most common presentations that we typically see in patients with vascular EDS are medium to small vessel artery dissections. And you can think about those in the mesenteric bed, renal arteries, cervical arteries, carotids, vertebral arteries, and also you can think about iliac vessels. In general, large vessel aneurysms are not very commonly seen in vascular EDS, but doesn't mean that it doesn't occur, but it's not the most common presentation couple of other points to also remember is that patients with this condition almost always get diagnosed after an event because they may have skin manifestations, increased vascular fragility, frequent bruising. All those may lead to clues, but family history is a significantly important component of this disease. Screening is the best way of diagnosing this condition. And although we don't have any specific treatments to treat patients with vascular EDS, but prevention and management is the most important thing. There was a very good review paper published by Dr. Eagleton in general of vascular surgery in 2016, which details the different manifestations and what can be done and what should be done, particularly from a surgical perspective. It's important to keep in mind that medical treatments, there was a drug called celiprolol, which is cardioselective beta blocker, which was studied a few years ago, and that showed actually excellent benefit for celiprolol. And this was submitted to the FDA last year for approval. But because of large-scale outcome studies not being available, FDA recommended conduct a large-scale trial before approving this medication for treatment. So at this point in time, we do not have any specific treatments. And in general, from a clinical perspective, most patients are treated with beta blockers to prevent, particularly in patients who have had a history of dissection, to prevent any further events. In general, pregnancy in these patients is more detrimental. So avoidance of pregnancy is generally considered. But it's a very individual decision with regards to pregnancy in these patients. And a multidisciplinary team would need to be involved, particularly pre-pregnancy counseling with genetics and meeting with a high-risk obstetrician gynecologist, um, talking to cardiologists who are um, specialized in this disease, and then come to a decision based on discussions amongst multiple specialists. There is no specific guideline with regards to preemptively treat or do surgery in these patients because in general, they do not have aortic aneurysms like we typically see with Marfan's or Lewis-Death syndrome, or bicuspid aortic valve disease for that matter. So as sobering as this patient was, you know, with regards to not being able to survive, I still feel that there's a lot to be learned from this case, particularly for the rest of the family and also her child who was born. It's important that the child is screened early on and meet with the genetic counselor and also probably a pediatrician, somebody with an expertise in vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome or any other genetically mediated vascular connective tissue diseases so the patient's child can be followed long-term to prevent any events like what her mother had. Thank you.
4: Now, a message from our program director, Dr. Venu Menon, an amazing teacher, educator. He carries many hats, but it actually is a great advocate for all of us as fellows.
7: Hi, uh, this is Venu Menon. I'm the program director of the General Cardiology Fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic. We just had a chance to hear an outstanding talk by Kara, Zach, Erica, and Ben, who are fantastic representatives of our General Cardiology Fellowship. I also want to thank Cardio Nerds for putting this together because this is just such an outstanding way of disseminating information to all those who love cardiology, whether they be students, fellows, or even faculty in training. We learn so much from these cases and each other's experiences. So thanks to the rest of the folks in cardio Nerds for giving us this opportunity. I want to take a little time here to talk a little bit about our general cardiology program at the Cleveland Clinic. We're possibly one of the largest programs in the country. We recruit 14 general fellows every year. So we have 42 fellows in our general fellowship and they come from the length and breadth of the country and represent internal medicine training programs all over the place. What we look to recruit is a bunch of folks who are motivated and in love with clinical cardiology and really want to make an impression on cardiology, whether it be at the bedside and counter by being proficient, whether it is by creating new evidence that's going to guide us to do new things in the future, or whether it's going to be to design new devices and create new therapies that are going to benefit our patients for the future. So that ambition and that leadership is what we're really looking forward for. And what we offer is probably the most widespread breadth and range of General cardiology one can experience as a general cardiology fellow. For those of you who haven't been to Cleveland, you know, the Cleveland Clinic has a very large heart and vascular institute. It's all located in one building, but it's part of a huge main campus. And we have about 350 to 400 beds. It's just dedicated to cardiology that we share with our cardiothoracic colleagues. And to experience the excitement of this place is something folks are going to miss this fellowship year due to COVID. But I do hope that you will visit our website and learn more about us uh, during this. Our aim during the fellowship is to train the best general cardiology fellow they can be. So what we mean by that is I want each one of my fellows, regardless of their commitment to a specific subspecialty to at least for that one moment consider imaging or consider heart failure or consider prevention, even if they're dedicated and want to do interventional cardiology. And we do that by giving them really fundamental bedside experiences in each one of these areas because each one of these areas is 15 to 16 faculty deep. And so we have a very large bench. And what this provides is the opportunity to discover mentors. Now, uh, we've spoken about this to my fellows in the past. We don't believe that there should be just one mentor. And I think you can have a mentor for research, a mentor for how you want to share your patient experience and another mentor for how you want to live your life. But I think given the large breadth of faculty we have, I think it gives a unique opportunity for fellows to see different cardiologists work at the top of their game, but take distinct aspects of each one of their lives to be the unique individual you seek to become. The other part I think I really want to highlight is Cleveland as a city. Being a Rust Belt Midwestern city, we offer all the amenities of a big city with great music, great sport, great infrastructure. And along with that comes a ease of living and a comfort that makes this such a family friendly place to live. That many of our folks who have lived in larger cities really embrace this for the three to five years that they are with us. And many of them just stay on to be Clevelanders for life our fellows usually go on to subspecialization. So I would say that 90% of our fellows go on to take one of our subspecialty spots in intervention or EP or heart failure. But some of them seek to go on to do general cardiology. And what I do emphasize when they do general cardiology is to have one component of your general cardiology reflect something that's special about you whether that's be interested in cardio obstetrics or whether that's hypertension or whether that's health policy or whether that is education and advocacy. I just think it's really important for all trainees to have a unique part that when you look in the mirror, you say, this is what belongs to me. And that gives you both passion as well as enjoyment in pursuing it. If you come to Cleveland, I think there's an opportunity to do great research There's an opportunity to do great innovation, but there's also a certainty that you will experience the breadth of cardiology training and come out, we believe, one of the best overall rounded cardiologists in the country. So I'm delighted to have read such outstanding applications this year. I'm so pleased to have an opportunity, even though it's virtual, to meet many of the applicants who might be listening to this voice cast. And I know that many of you will be my future fellows in the program. And if not, I'm sure we'll be colleagues who will hopefully shake hands and share some good times in the meetings in the future. So thank you
1: once again.
2: Wow, what an amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the Nerds case report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. We thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Noshin Reza for their incredible support and collaboration, and a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Vivian Verghese, internal medicine senior residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team med ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow Karin Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, read and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. Alright, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split.